0: Howdy and welcome to the 10-Week Bible Study. This is week two, day one of our study of Acts. I'm your host, Darren Hibbs, and today we're talking about Acts 3, 1-26. through <music> Welcome back to the 10-Week Bible Study. Again, I'm your host, Darren Hibbs. Would you join me as we pray before we get started today? Lord, would you open our eyes and our ears to hear what your word has to say to us, God? Speak to us and fill our hearts with the knowledge of you. We want to encounter you in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With that, let's jump into God's Word. to will be reading today from the NIV. This is Acts 3, starting in verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So here, you know, we see Peter has now done another miracle just like Jesus did in, in these courts. He's doing it out in public now. It seems like, and I don't know this for a fact, but the way I read this, it seems like the signs and wonders that we talked about in chapter two that were being done, that all of the believers are being amazed by, they're being done in their midst. Now, they're not necessarily meeting in closed rooms. They're meeting in the temple courts, but it seems like the things that are going on, they're not going on as publicly. But here's Peter and John walking to the temple. They're out in the courts. They're out in in public. And here's another miracle. And this is a big deal because everyone there, they know this guy. They've seen this guy. They're used to, they're, they're well aware. They know who this guy is. They've seen him a bunch. And now he's up dancing around, jumping. He's excited. <clears throat> this really gets everyone's attention. Um, I find it, you know, cool that, not only was he given the ability to walk again, instantly his legs are strong. Like they, I mean, you atrophy. If you don't use muscles, you can't just jump up. I mean, people that are fully capable of walking, but they have an injury or something like that, where they're laid up in a hospital bed for like two weeks sometimes two, three weeks. Um, They actually had to go through therapy to be able to walk right again because you atrophy so much so quickly if you don't actually get up and use your muscles. And so here's a guy who hasn't used them in years and he's jumping up and he's instantly strong. This is is a full-on miracle. This is absolutely amazing. And so, you know, everybody has now seen this and this is a, a public miracle. It's being done out in public. This is going to instantly draw a crowd, right? And, and they're sitting there and everyone comes running. They hear about it. You know, I kind of imagine that there's people running throughout the city. Did you hear about the guy that, you know, got healed? He's over here. You got to come see him. We walk past him every day to get in, you know, and there's all of this commotion and people are actually coming from all over. And this crowd grows quickly. We're going to find out it is quite a crowd. The crowd that came on the day of Pentecost was massive enough, like I don't believe that 100% of the people that heard Peter's sermon essentially on the day of Pentecost got saved. 3,000 people in that one day got saved and I doubt it was even 50% of the crowd that heard him, right? So so some large crowd, maybe 5,000, 10,000, maybe even 15,000 people in, in some form or fashion had gathered around Peter on that day of Pentecost and here we're going to find out it's going to be 2,000 people are going to get saved on this day. And so it's going to be a sufficiently large enough crowd that some percentage of them, and probably not the majority, are giving their lives to Jesus. Now, maybe maybe it was the majority. I don't really have any way of knowing, but just knowing people and and all of that, it just it, it, it makes sense that it would be less than 50%. But again, with the Holy Spirit, anything's possible. So I I, I can't say, but we know that the, the crowd has to be sufficiently large for what's about to happen. All right, let's go to verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us? If by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk, I, I love this. Right? We start the book where an angel—they're—they're they're all looking up at the sky as Jesus disappeared, and the angel is like, "Why do you look at those clouds in amazement?" It's like, didn't you just didn't you just see this? That weren't you watching this? And so now Peter is you know, he's taken it a little bit. Now he's going to give it a little bit. It's like, why fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Uh, Because the guy is paralyzed and you just made him walk, right? This is a pretty, I I think a pretty straightforward answer here. Um, Maybe Peter's being serious. I kind of wonder if he's kind of joking with him as, as well. Maybe by now it's actually, if there are really signs and wonders going on, amongst their midst, maybe this has actually become so commonplace. Maybe watching the power of God, the finger of God touch people, maybe that's become so normal for Peter. He really is being serious here. And I mean, in the same way, the angels could have been completely serious about it as well. I would imagine that the angels would have been a little bit more self-aware of that. And maybe Peter is too. I don't know. I just I, I look at this and I, I kind of chuckle at his question here. But he's going to go on and he's going to get very serious. Whether this is kind of half joking or not, um, he's about to get very serious. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses for this. I just like I hear Peter over and over again. You killed him, you killed him, you killed him. It's like, okay, Peter, we get it. We we're responsible, right? I mean, he's really laying into him here. This is absolutely not the kind of message that you want to preach nowadays if you want to put butts in seats. This is you just won't hear this kind of laying into people in this way, this, I mean, this is accusatory. Peter is not saying to 21st century Americans, Mm -hmm. you killed Jesus metaphorically, you know, not literally, but you know, your sin killed Jesus, right? He's talking to the people that were in Jerusalem saying, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, release Barabbas, right? He's talking to the very people that are shouting that, just, you know, however many days before, we don't know how many days after Pentecost this, this, uh, this thing here is, but I mean, not that long ago, he's talking to the same people. So this isn't a figurative, you killed Jesus. This is like, you guys were the voices that called for this. You did this, right? So he's laying into them in a very accusatory fashion, and and again, just like on the day of Pentecost, he lays in them, into them in a very accusatory way and it actually cuts them to the heart, right? Jesus does this stuff and especially with the Pharisees and Sadducees and they're like, oh, heck no. But these people, and again, these are the very people that are like crying for Jesus to be crucified. Peter's laying into them and it is going to pierce their hearts. Verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus's name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Peter's saying it's not because we're like super awesome, super apostle righteous guys. He's like, we're not. We're a person just like anybody else. It's Jesus. The thing that you're seeing right here, it's because of Jesus that this guy is healed. And for nothing else, it's not because, you know, we're awesome Jewish faith healers or anything like that. And they actually had, you know, people like that. We're going to see in the book of Acts, there were people that did exorcisms and things like that. So there were people that did stuff, but like, this is a dramatic miracle And Peter's like, it's not because of any of those things that you have conceived of. He's like the same Jesus that was doing this stuff. He's just now doing it through us, but it's still Jesus doing it. Verse 17, now fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. <clears throat> and then he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. This is very interesting. Peter's, Peter's saying, you know, repent, right? He's, he's saying, you did this, but if you repent, he's going to forgive you. And this is the very interesting thing, right? And then and he'll and he'll forgive you. He'll draw you in, and he's gonna send the Messiah. He's gonna send Jesus back. He's already alluding to the fact that it's not just about Jesus dying for our sins. Well, that's huge. I think for all eternity, for all eternity, we're gonna be there in a billion and a trillion years. I think a trillion years later, I think we'll wonder, we'll marvel at this idea of. God, why did you forgive my sins? I I totally didn't deserve that, but you forgave my sins. For eternity, I think I will marvel at the forgiveness of my sins. But even beyond that, Peter's saying, but he's coming back. He's coming back as the Messiah that you've been hoping for. Verse 21 Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people." This goes back to a question that the Pharisees asked John the Baptist. They said, "Are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet?" This is anytime they say the prophet, capital P, this is what they're talking about right here. This, this quote from Moses, this prophecy from Moses is there's going to be a prophet like me. who's going to come along, you know, essentially he's not going to be, Moses is very clear. He's not going to be a prophet that hears and riddles and dark sayings and dreams. He's going to hear directly from God. This is when he comes along, you, you have to do everything he says. You have to be obedient to him. Um, Anyone who does not listen will be cut off. Essentially, the prophecy of Moses is when this guy comes along and the prophet and the Messiah are one and the same, it's Jesus. When that guy comes along, if you don't do what he says, if you're not obedient to him, then you are a reprobate. You will spend eternity separated from God and from his people. That's a big statement, right? That's a big statement about who Jesus is. And this is going to be a big problem here. We're going to see this, this teaching, or at least this part of this teaching in particular is going to cause a lot of problems. It's very true, but it's going to cause a lot of problems for them. Verse 24, indeed, indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant of God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring and all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up His servant, He sent Him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways, and He's speaking specifically of Jesus. We know that you know Paul goes on in his letters, and he makes it very clear that that uh, he even does a thing with the, the 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 fact that in this particular passage, it's not. Plural that God is promising Abraham offspring, promising one offspring. The the Hebrew, Paul points out, is singular, right? It's not that you're going to have, it's not the part of the promise where you're going to have the is so many offspring, it's not going to be like the sand on the seashore. That's also part of it. that's a plural thing in the Hebrew. Here he's he's pointing out in the again, Paul later on, the apostle Paul writes in his epistle and he says, Do you are one offspring? Part of, the, part of the prophecy to Abraham was that there's going to be one person. And through that offspring, through that one person, all peoples on the earth will be blessed. And Peter's saying that one guy is Jesus. And, and again, Paul points this out. When Peter is saying this, he's speaking in in Aramaic. He's speaking in this native language where this matters, right? Because in, in English Bibles and things like that, very often the offspring... Um, we can't tell if that's singular or plural. You can only tell by context. And the context in, in a lot of those things, it doesn't make it clear. But in the Hebrew, it's very clear. It's one person, and then there's the whole saying in the seashore thing, but there's all there's other prophecy about the one guy. There's one offspring, one person that's coming. And it's very clear that's a messianic prophecy that, that the Messiah would come through the line of Abraham. Right? And so Jesus is that guy. Peter is essentially making the same point that Paul will later on in one of his letters, that Jesus is the one guy. And and all of these, this Hebrew, this Jewish audience, they know there's a distinction in their mind. They've been taught that there is the, the descendants of Abraham. I'm a child of Abraham. But then there's also the one guy. In the rabbi's minds, the prophet is actually different from the Messiah they think of them as as two different individuals. They didn't think of them as one individual. Um, They had a lot of these things. They had various ideas about a lot of of how this worked. There's there's the Messianic prophecies. There's the prophet. Um, They didn't even really know what to do with the, the places where it seems like the Messiah is being referred to as the son of God or as God himself, God in the flesh. And there are Old Testament prophecies where it refers to that in the rabbinic mind, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their understanding of the Messiah is that he's man. Like, he is not deity. He is only human. He's a son of David. He's, he's, he's not in any way God. Even though there's Old Testament scriptures that back that up very clearly, um, they couldn't wrap their minds around that. In the same way, they wouldn't have wrapped their minds around the prophet and the Messiah being one and the same. And to some extent, what Peter is doing is saying... It's the same guy, right? The prophet, the capital P prophet, that was Jesus. That was the guy promised. He came and he take, took away our sins. He will take away your sins, but he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to be like the Messiah that you've been expecting, that you think of when you think Messiah. That's what Peter's saying. Is He's saying right now he died, right? He, ro- he died, but he rose again and he, heaven received him. Right? So he didn't do the Messiah thing. He didn't do the, the physical, national, military salvation of Israel thing that, that everyone was expecting. And then, it, by the way, is very clearly prophesied in the Old Testament. The Messianic prophecies, I like to say, when we study the book of Revelation, I like to say that the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah is, he's going to come, he's going to kick butt, and he's going to take names. Right. He is going to win militarily. That is who the Messiah is. That's who they understood him to be. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong. And Peter is pointing that out. Like your understanding of the Messiah is not wrong. But I'm telling you that the Bible makes it clear that heaven had to, he had to come, and heaven had to receive him back first before he returns as that conquering Messiah that you're expecting. He's like, it's one in the same Jesus, the prophet, the capital P prophet, the Messiah, the, the son of David, son of God, all of these things roll. It's one guy. It's one guy. And really no one conceived of that. And I think there's an aha moment. for All of these people, we're going to find out 2,000 of them are going to give their life to Jesus. And I think there's like, holy cow, that's, that's amazing. He's He's right. He's right, and they can all see it. But that teaching also, that's going to cause them a lot of problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Sanhedrin are not going to like this teaching because this is directly contradicting what they teach. This is directly contradicting something that they actively teach to the people, and that's going to, that's going to cause them problems, as we're going to see. If that's all we have for today, we'll pick that up tomorrow. For the 10-Week Bible Study, I'm your host, Darren Hibbs, and I can't wait to see you next time.